Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can, have, can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. The president of Southeastern Theological Seminary, Danny Aiken, in his commentary on Mark, wrote, Failure can make us bitter, or failure can make us better. So here we are in the 41st part of our series titled, Following Jesus, and today officially marks one year since we began this journey together. I mentioned that to Kim yesterday, and she's like, really, has it already been a year? And uh, which which is a great thing that for a preacher's wife to say. It's only been a year, not like, oh my goodness, this thing is lasting forever. Right? <laughs> but over the last year, we have walked through the first eight and a half chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and in the process, we have covered a lot of ground, both theologically and practically. In fact, if you're new to this series, my encouragement to you, especially if you've missed any part of this, is to go back to our SoundCloud page um, or to our church website and listen to all the parts that you have missed. Because again, we have covered a lot of important stuff and, and, and stuff that can help you to grow in your walk with Christ, which, by the way, is why we're actually in this series in the first place. We began this series following Jesus because Mark is an action-packed, fast-moving narrative that actually focuses on what Jesus does. You see, all the Gospels highlight Jesus' teachings, but Mark, more than any of the other Gospels, uh, really focuses on his actions, including how he proclaims the truth, how he compassionately meets the needs of other people, how he interacts and treats other people, including people that don't like him. The Gospel of Mark records more miracles than than any other Gospel and records more of his activities than any other Gospel. And because of that, um, 
And, and because of what Jesus does here, this gospel is perfectly suited for discipleship or learning to follow Jesus. You see, all of us, all of us, we're not simply called to believe some facts about Christ. We were not called to, to, to just learn some details about his life and then spend the rest of our lives sitting in chairs on Sunday morning. We were all called, as, as Jesus says, to repent and turn from our sin and believe the gospel. And we were called to put our trust in him wholly and, and him alone. And then we're called to actually follow him. That's, that's why Jesus said we're to, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. We're called to go where Christ goes. We're called to go where Christ leads. And in the process, we are called to join him on his mission to share the gospel and to grow daily as we become more and more like him. Which, by the way, is what we all need. To be more like him. I mean, if there's one thing I need, it's to be more like Christ and less like the world. Right? To be more like Jesus and less like me. Because over and over again, my actions and my attitudes remind me of how much growing I still have to do. Because I can still act like and talk like the world. My actions and my attitudes betray the fact that I still have a lot of growing to do, and I need desperately to be more like Jesus. And so do you. That's what you need more than anything else. You need to be more like Christ if you're a believer. Now, if you are not a believer, you actually are in greater need. right? You need to simply recognize that you're a sinner under the wrath of God with no hope of your own. You need to repent and believe the gospel and trust in Christ. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. right? But if you are a believer, if you're someone who, who understands that you're a sinner saved by grace and you have repented of your sin, and you believe the gospel, and now you're following him, I guarantee you right now what you need in this moment is to grow to be more like Jesus. You need to grow in grace for other people. You need to grow in your humility towards others. You need to grow in your ability to forgive. You need to grow in patience. You need to grow in your spiritual disciplines like prayer, time in the word, fellowship, worship, giving. You need to grow in your boldness to share the gospel and the good news. You need to grow in holiness and deal with the sin that's plaguing your life. And you need to grow in your witness, the visible part of your life that you live out in front of the rest of the world and how you talk to other people and how you respond to adversity and how you take the time to listen and hear, and how you, how, you, how you love those who are really super hard to love. Right? The visible part of your life where you demonstrate that you really believe the things that you say that you believe. In all of that, you, like me, need to grow to be more like Christ. And, and that is why we're in the Gospel of Mark. Right? That's why we're in this series, because Mark has a lot to teach us about following Christ and becoming more and more like him. And today, we're really going to be in the thick of things. We're actually in the heart of this. Because remember, the first part of the Gospel of Mark was about answering the question of who is Christ. And what we come to know is that he's the Son of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And Mark proved that by recording his miracles and recording what Christ said about himself. And all of this culminated, if you remember, in Peter confessing Right? Supernaturally understanding and confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. Right? 
That's the first part of the gospel. And then the next section of the gospel is about why he came, right, what he came to do, his mission. But most relevant for us is the question is what does that mean for those who actually follow him? Now, now that we know who Christ is and why he came, what does it mean? What does it look like to follow Christ? And what's important for, is for us to see that this section right here is really kind of the meat and potatoes of this entire gospel for us with respect to learning to be more like Christ. Because in this section, it's really going to highlight the struggles and the triumphs and the growing pains that the disciples are going to experience as they learn to submit themselves and follow Jesus where he goes and, 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 and to grow to become more like him. And what's also important to keep in mind is this, this section that we're learning about to follow Christ, right, in, in light of who he is and what his mission is, is bookended on either side by Jesus healing someone who is blind. Right? This section begins and ends with Jesus restoring someone's physical sight. And that is not an accident, by the way. Because learning to follow Christ really is about having your eyes opened, your spiritual eyes opened. It's about seeing things that you couldn't see before. It's about learning things you didn't know before. It's about understanding things you didn't understand before. This section of the gospel that we are in is sandwiched in between Jesus giving sight to two different people. And the very first miracle, if you remember, where Jesus, he healed a blind man, but he did it in a very progressive way. And I don't mean progressive politically. I mean, like, it took progress to do it. He didn't heal them all at one time. Right? He first touched the man, and he gave him sight, and he asked him, do you see? And he says, yes, but I don't see very clearly. Right? And then, once he did that, then he touched him again and then gave him perfectly clear vision. And as, we, as we've talked about before, that, that our understanding of this is Christ and his, and his mission. Is, that's what it's like. And following Jesus is just like that. The disciples didn't just instantly meet Jesus and suddenly know everything and experience everything at once. They progressively began to understand. Things progressively were revealed to them. Their eyes have been progressively being opened through these events. That's why right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he then turns right around in his newfound strength to rebuke Jesus, you know, who was explaining that he came to suffer and, and die and be resurrected. And Jesus ends up saying, get behind me, Satan. You don't even know what you're talking about. Your mind is set on selfish things rather than on things of God. And if that wasn't enough of a gut punch, right? Jesus then tells him and the rest of the disciples that, that if they wanted to follow him, they had to be willing to suffer and die as well, which, by the way, was not at all what they were expecting. And so what we see is Peter and the other disciples have their eyes opened by Christ, but not yet all the way. And they don't fully see and understand who Christ is, and so they are in this process. They don't understand why Jesus keeps talking about his death and resurrection. They don't understand the full ramifications of all the things that they have learned yet, which then leads to the growing pains and the failures that they experience, which is exactly what we're going to see in this text today. Because today's text is about that. It is about their failure. Today's text is about failure. Some people want to say today's text is really about you know, how to learn how to cast out demons. It's not about that. It's about their failure. Today's story is about the spiritual failure of the disciples of Christ. In fact, Temper Longman, in his commentary notes this, he says, The story highlights the spiritual weakness and the lack of faith of the disciples. That's the point of this story. 
It's about their failure to do what Christ has commissioned them to do, right? But, but it is also about how God uses that failure to help his disciples to grow. You see, the main idea, as Danny Aiken says, is this. We will fail, but God uses these failures to deepen our dependence upon him, our faith in Christ, and, to, and, our, and discipline in our, in our prayer. This story, as we're going to see, is about how we fail and how God uses our failures to help us to grow to be more like him, which really makes this particular text super important for this series. So again, turn with me to Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And we'll pick up the story there. And it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. So again, it's important to keep in mind where we are in the story. Remember, after the disciples experienced that gut-wrenching roller coaster ride of emotions, and after after being with Jesus, that would be, that, motion, that roller coaster ride of emotions that really begins with with uh, with with Jesus telling Peter that he's blessed for for God opening his eyes, and ending with Jesus basically calling him Satan and telling the disciples that their picture of the future is all wrong. After that, six days after that. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain to pray. And while they're there, Jesus reveals to them his glory. right? And, and he does so in a mind-blowing way as he's transfigured and transformed right before their eyes. And he, and he does this to confirm for them who he is and to strengthen the, these men's faith for the road ahead. And, and once it is over, they make their way down from the mountain. And as they're doing so, Jesus tells these men not to talk about this until he is risen from the dead, which makes this even more confusing for these men. Right? And, and after that, after they have finally come down from the mountain, after these guys' heads are spinning, right? Jesus, Peter, James, and John come back, and his disciples are standing there. The nine of them, the, the nine apostles, are there, and there's a great crowd that's gathered around them. And there's a big commotion going on. In fact, it says that there's an argument that's taking place between the apostles and the scribes. Now, we need to really stop for a second and think about what this means. You see, what this means is when Jesus led Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, the other apostles just didn't sit down and sit idly by waiting for them to come back. Right? They had obviously been doing something or they had said something that had gotten them into this situation. Right? They weren't sitting there just being quiet and meditating and praying. And, and I don't want to make too much of this, but, but up on that mountain, there were a lot of parallels between Jesus and Moses. In fact, Moses appeared up there with them. And, and as we talked about before, Moses was a prefigure of Jesus, and Jesus was the prophet like Moses who was to come in the world after Moses. And, and, and if you remember in the story of Exodus, Moses himself at one point in his story left his followers in the valley, went up on the mountain to have an encounter with God, and when he came back down from the mountain, he did so only to find that those people he left behind were not patiently waiting for his return, but had gotten himself into their own mess. In fact, I would encourage you to read Exodus chapter 32. It's a great story. Now, I'm not saying that the disciples here had gotten themselves into wanton idolatry like the Israelites did when they worshipped the golden calf, but they certainly were operating on their own accord rather than waiting for Christ to come back down the mountain. And in the process, they created a controversy and got themselves into a jam. So what's the fuss about then? Well, it says, immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. 
Now, this verse right here is a subject of a lot of debate um, because the crowd, when, when they saw Christ, suddenly disengaged from what was going on around the apostles. They turned and ran towards Christ you know, eagerly because they were greatly amazed, which has prompted some theologians to say that maybe when Jesus came off the mountain, he was like Moses, that his face was glowing and shining with the glory of God. And the people were amazed by that. The problem is, that doesn't really fit with Christ's call to secrecy about what had just happened. He did not want to reveal his glory to anyone else. That was the point. He told these men to not talk about this, and they didn't talk about it until it was all over. Right? So more than likely what's happened is, is the crowd had discovered that the nine that had been left behind were Christ's disciples, and they were greatly excited that they were there because they actually were hoping to see Jesus in the flesh because he was famous. In essence, by this point in his ministry, he's a celebrity. And so when they saw him, they were, they were like people react around celebrities. right? They flocked to him. In fact, that would explain the trouble that these nine apostles had gotten themselves into. Because, because notice what happens next. Right? And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, notice he doesn't ask, why is there a crowd around you guys? Right? Or, or why are these people even here? Instead, he asks about the argument. And the reason for that is because the argument gets to the root of the issue. It says in verse 17, And some from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Now it's important that we think through what's happening here. Again, because we can read that detail and just kind of move on to the next part. But, but Jesus, over a week before, has this big conversation with these apostles right, about who they are and why they came and what that meant for them. And he reveals to them right, you know, that the, the truth is different than they expected. And so they're struggling with this. And he's basically saying, you're struggling with spiritual blindness and then six days later, he singles out Peter, James, and John, takes them up on the mountain to pray, and leaves these nine behind. And I believe that probably Jesus might have said something to them, but, but it doesn't tell us in the text that he said anything. It doesn't say what he, what he might have said to them. It doesn't, doesn't tell us that Jesus said to them, hey guys, why don't you just wait right here and keep out of trouble? It, it, it doesn't say that. Or just hang out here and rest and keep yourselves, you know, just keep to yourselves and your thoughts. Right? It didn't say that, but I do think that it would probably be safe to assume that there was at least maybe a little of an expectation that after everything they'd been through and after the emotional roller coaster ride they had been on, right, and that after all that they had seen, that they might have taken a little time, you know, finally to reflect and think about what Christ had been saying to them, right, and spend some time in prayer seeking God's wisdom and insight and clarity in what Jesus was saying what it meant for their lives, because, again, their whole worldview had been completely shaken up. I mean, their entire world was worldview was changed, and, and, and their picture of the future had been altered, and, and Jesus was, was talking about confusing things like his death and resurrection. And so I think it would be safe to assume that there might have been at least a slight expectation that these guys would have, like, found a quiet place and kept to themselves, right, and, and just thought and reflected and prayed and really try to process everything that's been happening. But that's not what the apostles found when they came back. Instead, they, 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 you know, it seems that these nine must have 
at least had a conversation with at least one stranger that ended up leading to this, this whole controversy. Hey, how are you guys doing? Oh, you're not from around here. Oh, okay. What are you guys even doing here? Oh, you're, you're disciples of Jesus of Nazareth? Really? I've heard of him. Wow. I've, I've heard he can do some really incredible things. I would really, really love to meet him. Right? I mean, I mean, I've heard that he can heal people. Is that true? I, I've even heard that he can cast out demons. What, what, what do you mean? You can cast out demons too? Really? You can heal people and cast out demons like Jesus? No way. Wait a minute here. Just wait right here. I know somebody who has a son that's demon-possessed. Let me go get him. All right? And let me bring him back here. All right? And then the next thing you know, word spreads about these disciples, these these people associated with Christ in this little community. And then suddenly the crowd is around them. You know, they heard about Jesus. They wanted to meet Jesus and find out more about him and perhaps even, even get a chance to see him in themselves. And, and then, right, the commotion starts, and guess who shows up? As they always do. The scribes and the Pharisees. They're always on the lookout for what's going on with Jesus. And then, and then comes the man, right, with the son who has the, the demon, right? And these nine disciples at this point, right, suddenly are, are, are surrounded by this crowd, and they're probably pretty confident that they can help this young man. In fact, um, the reason why they're confident is because, if you remember, Jesus had specifically and specially commissioned them to do just that, right? That he had empowered these men to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and cast out demons, and they had done that many times, they went on a short-term missions trip, and they did these things many times. In fact, in, in uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 13, it reminds us that, that uh, it says, and they cast out many demons, not a couple of demons, many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they, they'd done this before, many times before. And they did so going out two by two. Well, guess what? Now all, there's nine of them, not just two of them. There's nine of them there together. And so they must have felt really, really confident that they could cast out this demon because they're all there together. And just imagine these nine, right? right? Who had, with what they've seen, what they have experienced, what they have done, walking with Jesus for, a little, for over a year now, and now there's this huge crowd around them. The atmosphere must have felt electric, and they were probably excited by this attention, and, and, and they were probably thinking, just wait till Jesus comes back. You know, he, you know, he, he doesn't think you know, that maybe we're worth, worthy of him. So maybe when he comes back, we'll tell him how we, we cast out this demon. You know, and he'll come back and say, well done. Right? And then the man brings the son forth. And they, they all gather around him. And they confidently you know, get in close. And then one of them commands the demon to leave the boy, right? as they've done many, many times before, and nothing. And they go, okay, <clears throat> wait a minute, right? Andrew, you, you try this time, okay? Right? And you're in, your, in your best command voice, leave the boy, demon. And again, nothing. The demon doesn't even obey them. This is, this is one of those things where it kind of reminds me of the story, or the, the scene in the movie Star Wars, where the good guys are trying to get away from the uh, the Empire, they get you know on their ship, they take off and they're pulling away, you know. And Han Solo is like, "Watch this!" And he goes to flip the switch to go into hyperspace, and then nothing happens. And he's like, "What? What? 
He tries again, and, and, and nothing happens. I can imagine it must have been kind of like that kind of emotion. They're expecting this demon's going to come roaring out of this guy. It's going to be over, and then nothing. And they try again, and again, and again, and again. And it's like, what's wrong? Something's wrong. I can't believe I mean, What are we doing? I mean, we did this before a thousand times. How come he's not coming out of here? And then the heckling begins, right? Because the scribes and the Pharisees are there, and they begin to chime in. Oh, I thought you said you could really cast out demons. Hmm. I thought that you said that you were disciples of that one Jesus from Nazareth. I thought you were his special followers. You guys are just a bunch of phonies. You're charlatans. You're not really sent from God. In fact, Jesus, that guy you're following, is probably a phony just like the rest of you. In fact, I even probably heard, I even heard that he was an illegitimate son. Right? That his mama got pregnant from some unknown man. They don't even know who his daddy is. Right? You kind of see how, how that conversation could go? And the next thing you know, they're in a full-blown argument about what they're doing and, 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 and Christ and, and all. And what you need to understand is, is that these disciples, they failed. That's the reason why they're there. And they failed big. Because they're representing Christ and they're confidently walking in their own strength and suddenly they could not do what they had been called to do. Now, the root cause of their failure is something we're going to talk about in a minute, but what we need to understand and see from this text here is is when we fail spiritually like the apostles do, it's going to bring out the critics in Christ. Okay? Because notice who they're arguing with. The scribes and the Pharisees. It's the critics of Jesus. Right? And they're looking, they're looking for a reason to criticize Jesus. They're looking for a reason to cast doubt upon him. And the disciples' failure emboldens them to speak up. And this is something we need to pay attention to because it's the same thing for us. If we fail to walk with Christ, if we fail in how we, we pursue him, the world loves to find an opportunity to come to us and tell us things like, you know, you're just a phony. You're just stupid for believing that stuff. You're such a hypocrite. Heard that one before, right? How dumb it is for you to believe in Christ in the first place. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. This is not going to ever happen to me because I ain't casting out no demons. So this doesn't apply to me. Well, actually it does. The truth is the vast majority of us will never ever cast out a demon or lay hands on someone and heal them. But, but we do fail Christ visibly in front of the world many other ways and the world loves to come and criticize us for it. Like when we fail morally. Right? When we fall into sin, when we make a big mistake, when we, we get upset, <clears throat> or when someone makes us mad, and we, <clears throat> we say some things that we shouldn't say, or do something we shouldn't do, and the world sees it. And, and what is their response when that happens? What is that res- their response? When we fail morally, you call yourself a Christian? I thought you were a Christian. I, I didn't think Christians acted like the way you're acting right now. And if that means, if, if the way you're acting means to be a Christian, then I don't even want to be one. Have you ever heard something like that before? I mean, the world loves to throw that one out. You make a mistake and they're like, I thought you was a Christian. Hmm. When we fail morally, the world is quick to jump on us. But that's not the only way we fail. How about when we fail emotionally? You know, things get really hard for us, 
Right? We get overwhelmed by our circumstances. They pile up on us and our emotions get the best of us and we begin to despair and get upset and become negative and fatalistic and vocal about it and, and say things like, you know what? My life's never going to amount to anything. Everything I seem to touch doesn't work. Everyone and everything else is against me. Right? It, seems like, it seems like nothing's going to ha- go right for me. We have this emotional letdown. Sometimes we even just, just express it out loud. And we, we fail to keep our hope of our salvation in the center of our minds. And, and we have an emotional letdown in front of everyone else. And the critics of our faith rise up and say, I thought you said that your God was a good God. I, I thought you said that your joy was in the Lord. Huh. Where's your God now? Has he abandoned you? So much for them thoughts and prayers, huh? So much for your God who says that you say loves you. We fail morally and emotionally, but then we also fail apologetically. Sometimes we encounter people who ask tough questions about our faith and the nature of God, and sometimes people bring accusations against God like, you know, if God is so good and powerful, then how come bad stuff happens? Or the accusations that the Bible is just filled with contradictions or the Bible itself stands in opposition to science and you find that you're just not prepared to answer those kind of questions right? or the, those objections and, and, and you just simply don't know what to say. And, and then the critics rise up and, and they begin to say things like, well, see, you're just one of the knuckleheads that have blind faith with no evidence for your belief at all. Faith is just the opiate of the masses anyway. Faith is what people fall to when they have no other answers. You know, your faith is nothing more than a superstitious love for some sky fairy who wants to punish you every time you want to do something fun. When we fail spiritually, it brings out the critics right out of the woodwork. And, and, we, and we've seen that in our own lives. Right? And we see that here. These men failed because of the lack of faith. They failed to cast out the demon and the scribes were all over it. And that's what Jesus and these three apostles came back to. And Jesus asked them, you know, what this argument was about. Right? And, and the man was like, I brought my son to your disciples, right, because he has a demon, but they were not able to cast it out. And I want you to notice Jesus' response here to this. He answered them and said, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? Now, again, there's a lot of debate about this particular verse you know, as well, of who Jesus is talking about. Is he talking to the crowd? Is he talking to the apostles? Is he talking, you know, to the Pharisees? Because he's used the expression generation about them, you know, in uh, chapter 8 where he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, uh, no sign will be given to this generation. Or was he just simply talking about everyone because the word generation usually was universal to those living? I would say that Jesus is probably talking about everyone there, but he was definitely focused on the apostles. This was definitely aimed at them. right? But even that can miss the point here. The point here is our spiritual failure and our lack of faith, right? or, I mean, their, their spiritual failure and their lack of faith impacted Christ. Right? I want you to notice the language. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I... right? To be with you, how long am I to bear with you? This statement betrays exacerbation. This, this, this statement betrays irritation. Right? Their failure was frustrating to him. It was aggravating to him. You see the emotion here right, that, that, he, that he's feeling. This, this grieved him in a sense. It affected him emotionally. 
And the thing that we need to understand is our spiritual failures, our lack of faith, impacts God emotionally. It grieves God. Our spiritual failures, like falling into sin, or trying to walk in our own strength, or trusting in ourselves, and and failing to depend on Him, those things grieve God. It impacts Him emotionally. God is impacted by our lack of faith and our spiritual failings. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, because you can grieve him. And he said that in the middle of a list of behaviors that demonstrates the difference between spiritual failure and spiritual success. Our spiritual failures, be they moral failings or emotional failings or simply a lack of faith, those things grieve God. He says... How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? In other words, how much longer am I to put up with your lack of faith? It's frustrating. It's irritating. It's aggravating. Our failures grieve God. But notice then, after this expression of grief, he immediately shifts his attention to the young man who was demon-possessed, and he said, Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled, out, rolled about foaming at the mouth. So the demon does this immediately because he knew. right? He knew who Christ was, like old demons do. And he began resisting because he knew that he was in trouble. And then it says, and after Jesus, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into the fire, into the water to destroy him. Jesus asked the question, not because he doesn't know the answer. He asked the question because, because he wants those around and who were there to know that this is not just a minor demon affliction. This is not something that this kid's faking. This isn't like just a new condition. He wanted this to see this was a serious, chronic demon possession by a strong and dangerous demon. He wanted people to see that this was a real deal here. But the important thing to notice, I think, is what happens next here. The father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on on us and help us. And Jesus responds with, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now this right here, this is a super important text for a lot of reasons. Because number one, it demonstrates that we serve a God who is the God of possible. Everything is possible with God. Church family, I want you to hear me on that. Everything is possible with God. There's nothing impossible for God. There's no situation beyond his ability to fix. There is no ailment that he cannot cannot heal. There is no circumstance in your life that he cannot take and work out for your good. That is the God that we serve. He can take the broken mess of our lives and turn it into a beautiful masterpiece for his glory. God is sovereign over all things, and he can do all things. And and, and those of us who have have repented and put our faith in Christ, we have an up-close, personal, family relationship with that God. We are his children, and we have the privilege to call him Abba, Father. Right? And we are called to live in faith toward him. We are to trust in him, to be dependent upon him and him alone. 
And we're to believe that he loves us and wants what's good for us. And we're to believe that he can do whatever he wills to do. And so when we pray that someone would be healed, we need to pray confident, believing that God can absolutely heal him. Right? And when we pray that relationships can be made whole, we need to pray believing and trusting that God can absolutely make it whole. And when we pray that, that, that God would change someone's heart, that we, could, that we are confidently understanding that he absolutely can change even the hardest of hearts. And that's the assurance that Christ gives his man. All things are possible with God for those who believe and trust in him. But notice this man is struggling with unbelief. That's why he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Now there's a whole sermon in that one phrase. But I want you to realize that this man... He brought his son to Christ's apostles because he believed that they could help him. He believed it. That's why he came. He came because he believed that they were going to be able to help him. But their failure then shakes up his faith. It shook him up. He came believing, and suddenly now he's saying things like, if you can. You see, our spiritual failures produce doubt in other people. I think we've seen this before, especially the moral failures. Right? Our moral failures can create huge doubts in other people that, 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 that we or others are trying to lead to Christ. I mean, we've heard the stories of pastors who've fallen into sexual sin and how churches fall apart right behind it. We've heard about failures of or faithful church members who seem to be sold out for Christ and living for the Lord, then suddenly they leave their spouse for someone else. Or the person who runs around, you know, passionately telling everybody about Jesus, you know, and, and telling everybody they need to get saved, and then they fall back into their sin and fall away. This kind of failure breeds doubt in those around us who are watching. And again, I think we've seen this before. But we need to re- recognize that, that our emotional failures can create that same kind of doubt in others as well, especially when our emotional emotions cause us to act like the world around us. Like when we are hurt and upset by someone and we respond by yelling and screaming and using hurtful words. Or when we try to settle scores, right? Try to get even and we get caught doing it. Or we get caught manipulating a situation rather than just simply trusting in God. Or when people see us acting like everyone else in the world simply because we're emotional. Brothers and sisters, that creates doubt in them. Because let me tell you, church family, As followers of Christ, we're not called to live a little differently than the rest of the world. We're called to live radically different. Radically different. Even when we're emotional. That's why Jesus says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, They shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And and he says, Rejoice! (laughs) Rejoice and be glad. When people are mean to you and hurtful to you, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Life of the kingdom in the kingdom is supposed to be radically different than the rest of the world. That's how they see, how the rest of the world recognize who we are. That's why Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Don't even the unbelievers do that? You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be radically different than the world when we are emotional. Even when we're hurting, we're to be compassionate and forgiving, patient and long-suffering in, our, in, in all of our circumstances and, 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 and towards all people, especially towards other members of the body of Christ. One of the fastest ways for us to create doubt in others is to be unloving and unforgiving and ungracious toward other members of the body of Christ. Right? For Christians to talk trash about other Christians in front of non-believers... For Christians to refuse to settle disputes with their brothers and sisters in Christ, there are some Christians who just simply won't talk to each other. There are some Christians who won't even go to the same church as another Christian because of unsettled emotional issues. There are Christians who just malign other other people publicly. This should never, ever happen. We are called to live completely unlike the world. We're called to be like Christ. And our failure to do so creates confusion and doubt for the others around us, just like the apostles' failure did here. Now, those right there are the negative sides of failure. But the fact is that we're all still growing. Praise the Lord for that. Right? We all will fall short, and we will at times fail, just like the apostles did. Right? In fact, they, they failed a lot. And so what you need to settle in your own heart and your mind today, you just need to just like comfort yourself in this fact. If they failed, you're going to fail too. If the people that walked with Jesus personally and saw his face and watched the miracles, if they failed, you're going to fail too. You're not going to live a perfect life this side of eternity. You may grow a lot and fail a lot less often, but there will be times you will fail. So the question is never... Will I fail? The question is, what do I do when I actually fail? And that's what we see here. And Jesus said to them, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately after the father, immediately the father and the child, excuse me, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus saw the crowd came running together He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What I want you to notice 
in this text here is that after this episode is over, Jesus' disciples get alone with him, and they knew exactly what to do. They knew, they, they knew to ask what happened. What did we do wrong? Why could we not drive him out? What, what happened here? Right? We don't understand. You see, one of the positive sides of our spiritual failure and the way that God will use it to transform us, if we're sincerely following Christ, our failure causes us to examine ourselves. It causes us to look inwardly. It causes us to, to, to ask, where did I go wrong? What did I forget to do? How did I mess this up? What's really going on in my heart? Am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Why do I keep falling into this stupid same sin? Why am I not trusting Christ with this? It causes us to examine our hearts in light of the word of God. And if that were, right? And if that is where we go, right? If that's what happens to us, if it draws us to examine our hearts by the word of God, then ultimately our failures remind us of who we are, which is always important. Our failures should remind us that we are still broken sinners, living in a broken world filled full of other broken sinners. Things are going to happen, right? It should remind us that we have no power on our own to overcome our own sin. It should remind us how desperate and helpless we are. Our failure should remind us that we are depraved sinners deserving nothing but death. But by the grace of God, we're invited into his family through the perfect life of Christ and his atoning death on the cross. And because of that, our failure should remind us that though we fail, we are still beloved children of the king who sacrificed his own son so that we could have a relationship with him. That's also who we are. We should definitely remember who we are as sinners, but we also should remember who we are being redeemed, which means our failure should also remind us of who God is. That he is the awesome, sovereign Lord of all things, that he is completely holy and righteous and just and perfect, and we have no right to ask of him anything, and what he owes us is nothing more than his justice. And if he were to give us that justice, if he were to give us the hell that we deserve, he would be completely right and just to do so, and all of creation would, would rejoice at our condemnation. But God because of his amazing, unimaginable grace for us, decided to make a way for us to be saved. In eternity past, he, he, he decreed a plan to save us, a plan where God the Son would take on a human nature by literally being born of a virgin, and he would walk in our shoes, experiencing fully what it means to be human, except never to sin, which means he knows what you're going through. He knows the pain that you're feeling. He knows your suffering. And he lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. And he willingly allowed himself to be arrested, tortured, and mocked, and then crucified to pay a penalty for your sin that you couldn't pay. And on that cross, he took upon himself your sin and bore in his body the awful and terrible and unimaginable wrath of Almighty God that you deserve 
And in exchange for that, he gives to you his righteousness. His perfect obedience. A righteousness that becomes your own so that when you stand before God the Father, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfection of his only son. And all you have to do to receive that forgiveness and eternal life is repent of your sins and believe the gospel and trust in Christ alone. You see, our failures remind us of our dependence upon Christ. As his followers, we're wholly and totally dependent upon him. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. We can do what? Nothing. We are completely, totally, and utterly dependent on Christ for our life because he's the creator, for our provision because he's our provider, for our salvation because he's our savior, and for our spiritual growth that we are called to as we slowly become more and more like him, bumping our heads and failing and getting up and bumping our heads and failing and getting up. And as we follow him, we need to be mindful of that dependence upon him because I want you to notice what Jesus says here at the last. They said to him, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now there's some details here that a lot of people will focus on I think that kind of distracts from the main point. For instance, some people will look at this and go, well, see, there's evidence that there are different kinds of demons that are stronger than others, and you know, there's that whole discussion about demonology that way. And, and John MacArthur, somebody I respect, says that that's what this text is saying here. But then Temper Longman, somebody else I respect, right, says that that's really not even the point. Right? And, and so for me, the, and, and for the purpose of this message, and, and what we're talking about, it, 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 it's irrelevant, because the point is still the same. Jesus is saying that the disciples needed to be in prayer here. You see, the issue isn't so much the strength of the demon, but the weakness of the disciples. That's the issue. Because remember, Jesus said, if you have enough faith, you can move mountains, much less cast out a demon. The thing is, what we see in context here is these men essentially attempted to cast out this demon in their own strength because they thought that they had the power within them to do so. Again, as Longman points out, he says they had taken for granted the power given them by Christ and they had come to think that it was inherent in them, that essentially the power now belonged to them. And so they no longer were prayerfully dependent on God for it and their failure showed their lack of faith. You see, there's a tendency in all of us as Christians at certain times in our lives and certain situations to get on our knees and, and cry out to the heavens and beg for God to, to help us and we will turn to him in prayer and then we will turn right around and we will turn right around and we'll live the rest of our lives by our own strength, never praying about, should I... You know, pray before I go in and talk to this person. Should I pray before I discipline my child? Should I pray before this, pray before that? The point, the point is here is that in all that we do, in all that we do, especially when we encounter difficulty, we ought to continually be in prayer to God because we are completely dependent upon him. 
That is the lesson that Jesus is teaching these men. It's not demonology 101. The lesson he is teaching here is their failure wasn't that they couldn't cast out a demon. Their failure was their faith shifted from complete dependence upon Christ to dependence on their own ability. They failed to keep Christ at the center of their lives and their efforts. Which, brothers and sisters, is going to be the root of all of our failures as Christians. And that's the point that Jesus is making. The disciples forgot where their power came from, and they neglected to depend on Christ. These disciples failed, and Christ used their failure to help them to grow. As Danny Aiken said, the point of this text is we will fail, but God uses these failures to deepen our dependence on him, to deepen our faith in Christ, and deepen our discipline in prayer. Now, how do we apply this? Well, I think that the big lesson here is we need to continually depend on Christ. I think that's the simplest, easiest one to see, right? That's the lesson. As followers of Christ, we, need, we are dependent upon him, and so we must keep our minds focused on that. Right? And, and not just for what we might consider spiritual stuff, but for everything. We have to remind ourselves we're dependent upon Christ you know, as parents. We're dependent on Christ as spouses, as employees, as neighbors, as friends, as community members, even sometimes even as enemies. We're dependent on Christ in every possible area of our lives. Otherwise, if we don't stay focused on that, it's going to be easy for us to go, okay, Lord, I got this. I can handle this. We're going to walk in our own strength and fall flat on our faces. Secondly, since we're dependent upon Christ, we must be committed to a life of prayer. Prayer is our direct connection to heaven. Prayer is, is how we ask for help. Prayer is the recognition that I need something greater than me to carry me through. A life of prayer is dependence on Christ. And if there is an area that we can all grow in, it's this one. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today, I need to spend the first three hours praying. Because he knew where his strength came from. I mean, because all of us go, at three hours praying, how am I going to get anything done? Finally, we need to realize, we need to memorize and pray these three words. Change my heart. Lord, change my heart. Whenever you experience spiritual failure, whenever you fall down and make a mess of things, whenever you find that your heart is drifting, whenever you find yourself battling with sin and temptation, cry out to Christ, Lord, change my heart. Because you can't change it on your own. We are dependent upon him for the power to overcome the sin in our lives that plague us. We're dependent upon him for the unforgiveness that haunts us. We're dependent upon him to change the pride that pushes us to rely on ourselves. Now, before we close, I want to share one last little thing. And believe me, this text right here, this is another one where you could spend months unpacking. But there's one more thing I want to point out here. I want you to notice that just after Jesus commands the demon to leave, it violently leaves him and it says that the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, we know that the boy wasn't dead, but still, Mark uses a lot of symbolism. Right? This is the picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of death 
and Christ himself coming to give new life. What I want you to notice here is that the new life in Christ brings an end to our spiritual bondage. That's the reality of our faith in Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus, our old nature is put to death, and we are raised to new new life. That's what Paul says. The old man is dead and gone. The new has come. And, And the power, because of that, the power of the enemy is broken forever. We are no longer his slaves. We're no longer in bondage to him, because we now belong to Christ. All right? So, two things. If you're somebody who's not recognized that in your own life and you have not come to faith in Christ, come to faith in him today and come talk to me afterwards and I'll help you. But if you are someone who has put your faith and trust in Christ and you're walking with him, let that image be front and center in your sight so that you understand that we are completely dependent upon him and that we should live a life in prayer to him, continually asking him, to change our hearts because only he can. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.